My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Go ahead and pull out a Bible if you don't have one. We have some place down at the ends of the rows. And uh, when you get a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is where we're going to be working from this morning. And um, if you don't know where the book of Psalms is, no worries. It just, it's a huge book, so it takes up a lot of pages. Just open the Bible up to the middle and start flipping around, and you'll find the book of Psalms. And when you get there, just find the big number 72. That's where we're going to be working from today, okay? Now, Psalm 72 is, is a big psalm. It's a big psalm. All of them are big psalms in their own ways. But Psalm 72 is going to be a psalm that's really going, to, it's really going to speak to our hearts. It's really going to challenge us. It's really going to point to something extraordinary, extraordinarily beautiful. And so I actually just want to start by reading it with one another together. Uh, we're going to read Psalm 72 and begin to wrap our heads around it, okay? It starts with, Of Solomon. Of Solomon. This is written by King Solomon, who is the son of David. King Solomon, who reigned about 950 years before Jesus was born, okay? Of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and enemies lick his dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. Why? For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, may the gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made continually for him, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, may its people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field, may his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun, may people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. That's the end of the psalm. And then at the end of book two in the book of Psalms, it closed the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. But this is not David, this is his son Solomon. Praying, actually. So this is a big prayer. This is a big request, even, for people to be praying for Solomon. And what I like to say is this is an intermediate prayer. This is almost prayer 2.0 because this prayer is operating from a foundation of sorts, okay? There's something that this prayer is built on. The person praying, like we said, it's Solomon. He's had many, many experiences of injustice. Solomon, he's seen a bunch of injustice in the world, but he's not doubting whether God exists anymore. He's not doubting because of his um, encounters with injustice and with suffering. He's not doubting that, that God is loving, that God is powerful. 
That, that isn't his struggle. There are many struggles like that um, in the Psalms. There's a few of them. But that's not Solomon's struggle. He's witnessed injustice. He knows that God is still loving and powerful. He's not saying, woe is me. Instead, he's, he's saying, how might I be part of the solution? And it's clear through this psalm that he has become part of the solution. Okay? Now, now don't get me wrong. There, there is this common objection to Christianity that says, you know, God, there's suffering in the world. There's injustice in the world. We're going to be talking about justice today. This is a big topic. There's injustice in the world. How can I believe in this God who loves us? How can I believe in this God who's powerful? But I don't want to spend a lot of time with that objection today, but I'll, I'll say this. Um, we want to go to other more interesting places, but I will say this about that. Uh, the Bible, it repeatedly proclaims a loving God, repeatedly proclaims a powerful God. And the other thing it also does, it is also shows us suffering. Lots of suffering. Lots of suffering of the people of God. And it doesn't assume, the, the biblical authors don't see a huge conflict here. The, the, the church over the last 2,000 years hasn't seen an enormous conflict here. There's a loving God and suffering. Both those things can be true, Okay. And generally, what I've found is, is many who claim this is an insurmountable conflict are actually using this as kind of a smokescreen to something that's actually going on in their lives. Maybe I'm a pastor, so, so I have more of these conversations than you might have. But, but what I find is people use uh, this argument and many other smokescreen arguments like it just to, to, to kind of hide from perhaps a more superficial reason or a more painful reason that they really struggle with God and Christianity and religion. Maybe the more superficial side is, uh, if I were to be a Christian, I'd be weird. <laughs> I'd be weird. To be a Christian in Seattle is to be weird. Or if, if I would be a Christian, I think that would really limit my freedom in some key ways that I don't want to be limited. Or on the other side, the more painful side, if to be a Christian would mean to come square with the fact and have to deal with a lot of the pain that I've experienced as a result of the church. I found that those are often the real things informing this argument of the, this God is nonsensical, okay? Now, now, perhaps you've leaned on this argument in the past, um, and, and per, but perhaps your real issue with Christianity is this superficial, man, to be a Christian is to be weird. Man, to be a Christian is to limit freedom. Man, that sounds like a lot of work in my life, and, and that's great, because you know what? You've actually joined Many Christians who feel this way. Take your consideration to, to the next level with many Christians who are like, man, this is, I don't like being the weird person at the water cooler. I don't, I, I sometimes I feel that these freedoms that, that I used to have are gone now that I'm a Christian and it's a bummer. Now that's a consideration that we can roll up our sleeves and has a lot of depth to. Okay, so, so come on and join us in, in this. Put aside some smokescreen stuff. And let's just roll up our sleeves and be real with what's keeping us from Christianity, okay? Because I'm sure as, I'm sure, we all just saw it as we read our psalm today. We're going to see something really beautiful. We're going to see something really, really beautiful. It's what our passage called peace. And we saw that peace flourishing in a lot of ways, a flowery, flowery language. This is a, a prayer. It's worked into a poem, which was then worked into a song just sung aloud. There's a beautiful depiction of peace here. And to understand the full nature of this peace, we have to understand what the Hebrew word for peace is really getting at. The Hebrew word is shalom. Shalom. 
You've probably heard this shalom before. And, and, and the Hebrew notion of shalom has much more tied to it than just the absence of conflict. That's often how we think about peace, the, the absence of war, right? But shalom has much more tied to it. It's much more comprehensive, you could say. Shalom imagines a beautiful tapestry. It's actually language taken from weaving language. It imagines a beautiful tapestry that's being woven together with all these threads and all these, these pieces, millions of them even, that are making a greater picture of something far more glorious than the single unit. There, there's, there's harmony that these threads are bringing out in one another that are point, painting a beautiful picture. There's wholeness of, of single things coming together to form something far greater and far more beautiful, something really stunning. This is the Hebrew notion of shalom. It's a robust peace, okay? You can think of it as robust peace that encapsulates every person of a society, all of its moving pieces, Okay? Going from uh, the marketplace to the field to education to transportation to hunting, fishing, everything of a society coming together, even the world, this imagines nothing short of world peace being woven together into something absolutely beautiful, something whole, something harmonious. <clears throat> That's a beautiful picture. And it's one that we don't often get when we look out our society. It's one that we don't often get when we look in at our small areas of even participation within society, in our own relationships, in our own workplaces. They fall so far short of the harmony, the wholeness that this Hebrew notion of shalom, shalom captures, that they're obsessed with. But it's during this reign of Solomon that Israel gets closest. They get closest to this full, beautiful, harmonious wholeness of peace. They get closest to it. They're under, under Solomon's reign, okay? And so he's going to help us figure out how to get there this morning, okay? That's our job. We're going to see how Solomon said we might be able to take steps in that direction, okay? And his first clue is in the first verse. Give the king your justice, O God and righteousness to the royal son. Now, this is very interesting. Shalom is tied to justice. Shalom flows from justice, okay? Now, this shouldn't be a surprise. Some of you are like, yeah, we get it. We have to have justice in order for peace to work in society again. But here's the deal. Even though while the, our, the notions of justice are largely debated in society, um, it's this justice that does bring about wholeness and harmony. Let me give you an illustration, okay? Um, my wife, Christy, we live in a townhome about 10 blocks from here, and we have two little girls, and uh, we, we try to clean on the weekends. It usually happens, okay? But throughout the week, this is what happens. Dirty dishes pile up, dirty clothes pile up, um, things get put in random places. That's primarily my fault. Uh, I just put things places. I forget about them. Um, my daughters make crafts, and they use masking tape to fix them to the walls. Uh, there's bits of, peeper, uh, bits of paper just scattered everywhere. Um, currently, the girls are, have a fascination with making forts, which means they take all of the furniture from our living room, they put it in the middle, and then they put blankets over it. I walk in, I can't sit anywhere, okay? So as the week goes on, our uh, home falls into less and less harmony, you walk in at the door, and you will be anxious by Wednesday, usually, especially because, like, 
We don't have, we used to, we have cohort on Tuesdays. We're taking a break for a month, so we're not forced to clean our house on Tuesdays. So by Wednesday, it's really bad. It's really bad by Wednesday, okay? But how are we to restore shalom again? Well, my wife and I, we enact justice on our townhome. That is, we make right decisions about how things are to be ordered. This goes there. Chairs are to be sat on again, not played under. We do this, and then justice is restored to our our home. Harmony and wholeness are there again. I can walk downstairs in the morning and just sit, drink my coffee, and read my Bible. It's amazing. It's amazing. We enact justice on our townhome. Now, the main job of a king is to rule justly. It's the main job, to make right decisions regarding the kingdom. That was Solomon's main job in Israel. He was the one who got closest to it. This flourishing state. Look at it. Verse 3. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people, and the hills too, in righteousness. Verses 6 through 8. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, showers that water the earth. Down to verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And verse 16 is, May there be abundance of grain in the land. On tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. So Israel experienced a heavy dose of shalom under Solomon's right decisions. And the question is, how? Where did these come from? What did justice look like? These are the decisions that we wrestle with in our society. We're always wrestling with it, especially as a progressive city. How can we be, experience more harmony? How can we experience more wholeness? How can we experience more justice today than yesterday? That's the question that the, the progressive hubs of uh, the United States are always asking tirelessly every day, like Seattle. That means that we could talk all day about justice. We could, I could give a session, we could have breakout sessions, we could come back and teach some more, we could have a panel in here, we could have special guests, we could break out again. We would only scratch the surface. This is a really, really deep subject, I'm going to admit that. And so we only have time to do three things with it today, and we're going to follow our passage to do that, okay? The first thing we're going to do is, is we're, going to, uh, we're really going to see where justice comes from. Where does it come from? It's a very simple question. Um, second, we're, we're going to look at its full scope. What's the full scope of biblical justice? Okay. And then third, we're going to see how we might participate as well. Okay. So that's the flow, where it comes from, its full scope, and how we can participate with it. Okay. That's what we're going to do. Okay. So verse 1, that's, that, that's where it's going to start with. It's going to tell us where justice comes from. It's implied in there. Solomon says, give the king your justice, O God. What's the implication? Justice comes from God. Justice comes from God. Now, that's hard for a secular city. And when I use the word secular today, all I'm just meaning is, is, is the parts of, of society and humanity that seek to, to look at uh, creation and everything and understand it apart from definitions that have God worked into them, okay? That, that's just anything secular, um, Okay. It's hard for a secular city to hear that justice comes from God because that three-letter word isn't allowed in a definition of anything, okay? Perhaps you're rolling your eyes if, if, you, if you're coming in here and you're just starting to, to consider Christianity, okay? Remember, this is the leader that got closest to it in all of Israel, okay? And he knew where to get justice. He had the humility to say, 
I can't find justice in myself. I need to look somewhere else to get it. He knew where it came from. It came from God, so he asked for it. Where does our society say justice is found, though? Where? It's an interesting question. Maybe you haven't asked it before. Here's what I'll suggest. Um, Secular attempts at finding justice, that is crafting the definition of justice without God in it, says that justice is inspired by our empathetic encounters with injustice and then our own intelligent responses. Our empathetic encounters, that's how we identify injustice. And our intelligent responses, that's how we begin to work justice. If you want to find justice, go encounter injustice, get enlightened, get woke, and then come up with a solution. That's really how we conceive of justice. Lean on your own empathy to discover injustice. Lean on the social sciences to help you craft an intelligent response. And if you can't get on board with my notion of justice, then you're either not intelligent or not empathetic. This isn't something um, we see Democrats doing Republicans, or just that. We see it happening both ways. If you can't get on board with my level of justice, you're uncompassionate or unintelligent. This is how we do justice. This is how we do it. Now, don't get me wrong. Empathy and compassion are crucial. They're crucial to justice, okay? We are hardwired with them for a very good reason, okay? Secular attempts, they begin at witnessing something that is unjust and mourning it. And as the church, we should be mourning it more, honestly. That's why one of our principles as a church is we lead with lament, We lead with lament. Every day, you will come into countless areas of brokenness, of hurt, unjust things that are happening. And it's the church's job to lead with lament. Lead with lament. This is what Jesus did throughout his ministry. This is what we see happening throughout the scriptures. This is such a huge theme. We made it one of our principles. We lead with lament. It's so important. But when the discovery of justice is thought of in just this way, it places, it, it places discovery in subjective experience. <clears throat> and it looks for the, when it looks for the solution in human intelligence, two things happen, okay? That form of justice is limited, it's divisive. It's limited and it's divisive. First, that form of justice is limiting. If injustice is only that which elicits our empathy, What about the injustices that occur that we don't have empathy for? You think of it this way. Every injustice has been justified by entire nations sometimes. It's limiting. It's incredibly limiting. Our identification of injustice, it can't be left to our discretion because our empathy isn't perfect, okay? Second, when justice is thought of this way, it's divisive. Even when groups agree on observed injustices, even when they look at the same thing and say, yep, that's unjust, they always struggle to find a unified way to go forward. Always. You could look at at any movement where everybody has agreed on the injustice that's taking place, and you know what you'll find within it? Backbiting, bickering, accusatory language. You don't actually really get it. 
Why is that? Because we all struggle. Uh, While people may agree on the injustice, when we internalize and individualize the solutions to justice, we all come to different decisions about how injustice is to be enacted, or how justice is to be enacted to move forward. So as a result, they often splinter. They often fade. You can think of it like this. Every, um, every four years, the run-up to the presidency, we get 20 different examples from the same party of justice. 20 different plans for how to make the right decisions of justice every four years. I think there's this myth that we live in a two-party system in this country. We're incredibly splintered. We live in an incredibly splintered society, okay? And so it's no wonder that the secular attempts at justice, they always leave us wanting. Because they call the individual to look inward, to enlighten oneself. And then in pride, we imagine that we can white-knuckle the solution. It's, it's just how a highly individualized cultures, they, they, they misfire in the arena of justice. That justice is limited and divisive, okay? And so this is where Solomon departs. He models how the people of God consider justice. What does he say? He says, look to God. He is the one that gives justice. It gives us the best perspective to identify injustice, and it empowers unity to pursue it. The largest reason that that civil rights garnered so much support in, in the 60s was because there was a pastor whose main cry was, look to God, we can fight this injustice together through him. That's Martin Luther King Jr. Go back and look at any one of his interviews. Go look at, back and look at his manuscripts. He's incredibly God and Jesus focused, almost embarrassingly so. The greatest social justice movements in our nation and in human history have been done by Christians. But, but nowadays that the world hears this, considers it foolishness. Look to God for justice? How, how can we do that? But justice comes from this I guess you could say foolish request in verse 1. Very foolish request. Not from empathetic enlightenment, not from creating creative solutions, not from making big machines, social machines. Now, back to our psalm, to Solomon's relationship with justice. Okay, here's a little background on Solomon that helps us understand why he has special insight here. Why, that, why he was actually the one that was able to realize the most shalom, Okay. God val- or Solomon valued God immensely, immensely, so much so that uh, part of what he did, and this is recorded for us in 1 Kings, is all the time he'd just go around and he'd sacrifice thousands of animals at once to God. Seems intense. But he was a wealthy guy, <laughs> being the king, and he would sacrifice huge amounts of animals. And this wasn't like sacrifice that burned the whole thing. No, often it would bless the priests and the, the people as well, they would actually eat and consume uh, most of these sacrifices. Okay, so it's not complete animal cr- uh, cruelty that's happening here. He would sacrifice thousands at a time. And in 1 Kings 4, he does this, and God shows up to him. And God says this, the first, time, the first and only time God ever says this in Scripture. He says, what do you want? God appears to Solomon, looks at him. What do you want? I'll give you anything you want. That's crazy. That is crazy. God shows up. This essentially is a magic genie to Solomon. What would you ask for? Solomon asks for wisdom. 
Solomon asks for wisdom. Maybe even verse 1 here is what Solomon asked God for. He asks, give me wisdom so that I can rule these people of yours justly. That's his request. Wow. What a foolish thing to ask for. You have the creator of the universe showing up to you and saying, hey, what do you want? I'll give it to you. You ask for some smarts? Come on. But here's the thing. This is prayer 2.0, I guess. This is prayer intermediate. This is a step beyond. Uh, Do you ask God for the things that would increase his mission, his glory in the world, or the things that would increase your mission and your glory in the world? You see, this this is a more mature prayer. Do you ask God for the things that will increase your happiness? Ask God for things that will make your life easier, the things that would lessen your anxiety, things that would make you more desirable to others. That, that's a self-centered prayer. Now, I'm not going to come down on that prayer and say that's a terrible prayer. All prayer, all talking to God is good. Jesus tells us to ask him for things, okay? But here we have mature prayer. Here we have a, a prayer that's progressed beyond that. These prayers where we just ask for stuff for ourselves, they're not bad, but they're not profound. Even people who wouldn't call themselves Christian reach out to God in in times of discomfort and ask him for these things. They cry out to God in these ways. But Solomon's prayer is a mature prayer. Psalm 72 represents a full mature prayer for us. What about it makes it mature? Solomon asked God for himself. He asked God for himself. He asked for a character trait of God So that, this is the key, others might be blessed, not him. This is mature prayer. When we ask God for his qualities, that we might bless others as he's blessed us. God, give me your wisdom and justice. God, give me your love to extend to others. God, give me humility that I might take it to my workplace and lead from that point. God, give me your long-suffering patience to put up with people who drive me absolutely crazy as you put up with me. God, God, give me the courage, give me your courage, the courage of Christ to speak up when I need to. See, these are mature prayers. They value God correctly. These mature prayers have stopped seeing the gifts that God gives as treasure and have started seeing God himself as the treasure to be attained. And it can only happen when we move past God Seeing God as a means to bless us with connections, bless us with relationships, money, ease, parking spaces. They only happen when you understand the goal of your relationship with God is to take his blessings to the world, not to take his blessings for yourself. Now, what does this request lead to? Um, This is what's startling. This is absolutely startling. It leads to an, an obsession within Solomon. And and this isn't an overstatement. Solomon becomes obsessed with the poor, with the needy, with the powerless. Verse 4. May he, that's the king, defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, crush the oppressor. Verse 12. This, what's interesting about verse 12 is it really is an answer to, to why should this king be glorified on earth? Because of this. Because he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence 
He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. You see that? Solomon became oppressed with the poor, oppressed with the, or he became obsessed with the poor, with the oppressed, with the powerless. And it was through this obsession that Shalom came into his kingdom. It's through this obsession. And the question is why? Why that obsession? Why being obsessed with the poor and the powerless and fighting for them? How does that bring shalom into the kingdom? Some of us might think it's obvious, but there's actually something that is right through the whole narrative of Scripture that we often miss. And I think we've missed it a lot as a church, and we have a lot of repentance to do here. That God identifies with the poor, the oppressed, the powerless. Now, I think you might have heard me wrong when I said that. I didn't say that God loves the poor or the powerless, that he thinks of them, that he has a special care for them. I said that God identifies with the lowest on the totem pole. God says, that's me. That's me. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. It's obsessed with the poor, the powerless, the oppressed. Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses the poor man, he says, insults God. But whoever is generous to the poor man is generous to God. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever gives to the poor gives to God. This is so countercultural in the time of Solomon. The people who were closest to the gods back then were the people at the top. How did you know? Because they were at the top. The gods had blessed them and got them into the situation, into the, uh, the realms of influence and power and wealth. The gods loved the guys at the top. But for Solomon, he flips it. He said, God identifies with the poorest of the society, actually. There's an illustration which is really fun. In, in, uh, at one point, there's a, a neighboring general. His name's Naaman. He comes down with leprosy. He goes to the Israelite king because uh, he's heard that there's a prophet in Israel that, that can heal people with leprosy. Goes to the king and says, hey, here's all this money. Can you command the prophet to heal me? The king rips his clothes. Pretty dramatic response to rip your clothes. He says, who am I but a mere man? Do you not understand? This is, this is Israel. I don't sit at the top here. The prophet sits above me and judge, judges me. I don't tell him what to do. You've got to go to him yourself. You see, this is so countercultural of that day. God identifies with the lowest. It's everywhere. Zechariah 7, God identifies with, not just loves, he identifies with the poor, the oppressed, the widow. Isn't this interesting? In a society that's male-dominated, who does God identify with? A widow. In a society that is family-dominated, who does God identify with? The orphan. In a society that is, is so focused on, on clan and relationships, tribes, who does God identify with? The immigrant, the foreigner, the alien. It's right through the entirety of the Old Testament. A lot of people, uh, I hear this often, is, is like, I can't get on board with this God of wrath in the Old Testament. And, and I, I look back and I say, well, have you read it? Have you read it? There's a theme throughout this whole Old Testament that God identifies with the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. That's who God identifies with. And his wrath is poured out on those who are unjust towards them. This is what the Old Testament's all about. It, it continues right into the New Testament. 
too. I mean, Jesus shows up. He announces his ministry by reading Isaiah 61. Isaiah 6. We just need to look at it, I guess. Isaiah 61, this is what Jesus says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to who? To the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, pro- proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So Jesus says, that's what I'm here to do. I mean, it carries right into, it's, it's all of, into the church era. I mean, Paul shows up, starts preaching to the Gentiles. The, the Jewish Christians are like, whoa, do they have to follow the law? Paul goes and talks to Peter, James, and John, have this theological debate about what of the law do these new Gentile converts have to follow? They're like, yeah, just worry about these few things, you know? Don't eat a lot of blood, you know, don't drink blood. It's probably good for all of us, okay? But then it's almost like a, a, a postscript on the whole conversation. They're like, hold up, Paul, hold up, hold up. Are you remembering the poor? Are you remembering the poor? And Paul's like, absolutely. That's the thing that I'm eager to do everywhere I go. I'm remembering the poor. See, God's identification with the poor is so central to who he is, to everything we know about him through scripture. And this is gonna startle you. It's so central. If you think you have a relationship with God, but don't have a relationship with the poor and oppressed, then you might be mistaken. That's startling. You actually might not know God because that's where he is. And I didn't just make this up. Jesus said this far before I did. Matthew 25. This is Jesus speaking about when he comes back at the end of time. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. See that identification? I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see the hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When when did we see all of these things? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed to the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Identification with the poor, powerless. The oppressed, the widows, the orphans, immigrants. Did you know that's where Jesus is? That's where he is. Considering Jesus means to consider the poorest and the most powerless in a society. So that's where justice comes from. A God who identifies with those who experience injustice, okay? That's true justice. Now, what does this look like when it's enacted, okay? Um, I have three things here. Um, It's actually a very important question because 
the primary reason our society is divided is because we can't agree on what justice is. Everyone says they're on the side of justice, but no one can agree on it. Here's an example. I'll just throw in a quick example. Um, th- this is, there's a historic uh, issue in metropolitan cities where the, the youth of the city uh, come from broken homes. They go to school in underfunded educational um, institutions and, um, well, I, I guess we'll just say they don't have the greatest of peer influences, which has led to the end result of illiteracy in 13 and 14-year-old children in cities. This has happened across America. Now, the, the, the left will, will look at that and say there has been an economic breakdown and an economic inequality that has led to that. The right will look at that and say this is actually the breakdown of the family unit that is causing this, and so we need to focus there instead, okay? Well, you know what both groups don't do? They don't look at the kid and say it's their fault. <laughs> no one says it's the kid's fault. <clears throat> See, everybody ag- agrees on the injustice, No one can agree on the justice, the right decisions that need to be made to move forward. So what is justice? Um, We're going to look at, there's three three pieces here, and it it boils down to three broad pieces. And um, I've actually learned this from other more wise, uh, more just teachers that have more uh, Bible uh, knowledge than me and far more experience than my my brief 31 years, okay? Um, And so three quick uh, ways to identify what justice is, okay? The first one is equality of treatment. Equality of treatment. Leviticus 24.22 um, says not to have different laws for foreigners or other groups. It's Leviticus 24.22. Do not have another set of laws for foreigners. <clears throat> yeah, all, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It all outlines attitudes towards poor, widows, orphans, the oppressed, and society. Treat them the same way. The Israelite law was consistently against bribes because that means that people get treated in different ways. Now, all these things are revolutionary. (laughs) Absolutely revolutionary. In in, in high school, we kind of get shown, maybe I did, maybe you did or did not, the code of Hammurabi. And this guy named Hammurabi gets heralded as this great guy who made a code of laws for the Egyptians. I think it's Egypt. I think it's Egypt. But this, is, this far outpaces that. This far outpaces that. Look at that. I mean, do you know that this represents the oldest codified social justice document ever written? Ever written. What an embarrassment of riches that sits in our laps if we only knew what was in it. There is so much social justice on these pages. The first one ever codified. Ever. Okay, that, that, that's, that's equal treatment. That's the first piece. The second piece to full justice is that vulnerable populations are of special concern. Special concern. Uh, Proverbs 31, 8 says, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. That's a command in the Bible for all the people of God. It's, it's, It's not a suggestion. Speak up when you're able to. No. Speak up when you feel like it. Nope. It's not even there as a, when you come into contact with people who can't speak up for themselves, be sure to speak up for them. It doesn't have any of those qualifiers on it. It says just do it. It's a command, speak up for people who can't speak for themselves. What does this mean? What does this mean? How how can we do this? This command is dependent on having relationships with poor and oppressed people. You can't lift up their voice if you haven't encountered, listened to, 
and internalize their experience yourself. You, you just can't be their voice unless you have a significant relationship with them. So, so this goes a step further than calling for equal treatment. It includes personal advocacy. Personal advocacy. Third, generosity. Share your assets and yourself. Um, this actually comes from Isaiah 58, when there's a, a, all the leaders, the, the religious in Israel, are trying to follow God and be pious. And Isaiah, the prophet, looks at them and says, you want to be pious? Stop taking advantage of the poor. How about that? Isaiah 58, verse 6. God, this is God speaking. Isaiah is speaking for God. Is this not the fast that I chose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke and let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your homes? When you see the naked, to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. You see this identification? You see this equality? Identify with your own flesh? If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom will be as the noon day. <clears throat> They're taking advantage of the poor. Isaiah says you need to be generous towards the poor. Now, so full um, justice is equal treatment, advocacy, generosity, those three things. We're tempted as people to just do one and say, I've checked the box. Equal treatment. We can put the sign in our lawn. We can hang the flag in the window. We can change our Facebook status. We can put the filter behind our photo or over our photo. I'm not sure how it works. And check the box. I'm a just person. Got it out of the way. But no, have you actually advocated? Do you have a relationship with somebody who needs their voice lifted up? Have you actually been generous? The other side of this is, I throw a lot of money at this. I'm a just person. It's like, wait, hold up. Do you have a relationship? Are you advocating? Is your, are you trying to internalize a poor and oppressed voice that you might proclaim it from your position of power? I mean, this is the message we need to hear. This is full justice. All three of these things coming together. I know we're probably feeling guilty. That's okay, <laughs> but it's not enough. That's where our society would stop. Shame us. You better get on board with justice if you're shamed. <clears throat> but how are we supposed to respond? How actually might we, by, we, we be inspired to respond? Okay, I, I realize this is heavy. I realize this is startling. But this is in the word of God, and I love you enough to show it to you, okay? Now I'm going to show you how we might be able to respond. <clears throat> let's start by how, how not to respond, okay? How not to respond. Um, us Americans, we say we need a plan. We need a plan. But lack of a plan actually isn't what limits justice. The problem isn't that we haven't built the right social machine yet to sustain ongoing justice. Um, has anybody here heard of Beatrice Webb? Beatrice Webb? Beatrice Webb was the person who is largely responsible for imagining and creating the social welfare state in Britain and in Europe, okay? Britain and in Europe. And she has, she did it with a lot of others too, it's not just all on her shoulders. She did this, did this at the, in the early 20th century, and after a lifetime of doing this, she wrote this in her diary in 1925, which I find fascinating. She was actually reflecting back to when she was a young woman in 1890, actually, 35 years before. And this is what she said. 
She says, in my diary in 1890, I wrote, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Let's get on board with her notion of justice. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts within man and how little you can count on changing them by any change in the social machinery. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb bad impulse. How fascinating. What great perspective. A lifetime of perspective. This is what she says. We could build and do everything that we want. We can use knowledge and science when it comes to dealing with poverty, but it won't be of any avail unless we can learn how to curb the selfish, bad human heart. That's the biggest obstacle to justice, she said. I think she's right. That humans don't have the right heart for justice. She went on to say that even showing that justice for the poor was in the best self-interest for the rest of the population, that didn't work either. Didn't work. She, She said bad impulse is that selfishness, essentially. And so if you actually just try to lean more into somebody's selfishness, it actually doesn't work. Building a great plan or machine didn't work. Leaning on their self-interest didn't work. Well, what is it? What works? How are people inspired to justice? How can people get out of their selves? Well, there's, there is one thing that gets us out of the self. There is one thing that has a, a de-centering nature to it. We talk about it every so often here at Sedaris. We often talk about it. It's beauty. Beauty. Beauty has this de-selfing, this de-centering nature about it. This is something that people have realized throughout the millennia. Many huge uh, lines of philosophic thought actually pick up on this. This is a big thing that Plato often talked about, but it's also just true of our experience, isn't it? When you look at a grand, grand landscape view, mountainscape, soundscape, we were at a wedding on Friday. It was overlooking the sound. It was huge, and it was beautiful. And it's just like, wow, there's something else out there that's greater than me. Beauty has this de-selfing characteristics to it. You're forced to step, out, step outside of yourself and acknowledge something greater. It's a decentering experience. Now, now, we don't just have to try to find beautiful things, and then we'll be inspired to justice in the world. That's not how that works. But I do know one beautiful thing that has that effect. In the Old Testament, we have a lot of lip service of this God that identifies with the poor, sure. But in the New Testament, 2,000 years ago, we know that God literally identified with the poor. How? Jesus shows up in a feeding trough, in a barn. God chose to be born into even a poor family. Joseph and Mary, they go to the temple to dedicate Jesus. What do they offer? They offer two pigeons. This is the offering that is prescribed for the poorest of poor in society. Jesus grew up poor. He lived the life of a poor carpenter. Poor carpenter. Then for his ministry, he he wandered for three years, and he says the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Effectively homeless. When he got to the end of his life, he rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, ate his last meal in a borrowed flat. The Roman soldiers, they argued over his only property, his piece of clothing, cast lots for it. He was buried in a borrowed grave. That's our Savior, identifying with the poor. 
But he not only became poor, he became oppressed. How do we know that? Because his trial was a miscarriage of justice. God identified with the millions of people in Jesus' trial who have been tortured, imprisoned, put to death unjustly. And here's the key about the cross for you and for me. And if you don't understand this point, you, you, you really won't understand the great beauty of the cross. What I just told you is everything about how the life of Jesus points to the fact that he loves and is obsessed with the poor. But the cross, we have to realize that you and I, we are poor and powerless. We're spiritually afflicted. Sin has touched us, broken us, controlled us, marred us to the point that we no longer could be with God. But God, because he's a God who identifies with the poor, with the powerless, he became that for us on the cross. He took on our poverty, was separated from God. He cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where'd you go? He suffered separation from God for it. Praise God for your sake and for my sake that he identifies with the poor, with the oppressed, with the powerless, because all of humanity is spiritually bankrupt. We're all spiritually bankrupt. There's no other religion in the world that says that God experienced injustice. You can't find one. That God himself experienced injustice. But Jesus Christ says this, I who deserve vindication and justice more than any other human that ever lived because I am perfect, I will vindicate you by taking on your poverty and your oppression. Now if that is beautiful, that'll get you out of yourself. When you truly look at that, that'll get you out of yourself. How so? Some of the biggest barriers to justice, superiority. I just feel too superior to, to look down on the poor and oppressed and help them. Well, the, the great thing about the cross is it levels the playing field for all of us. We're all poor and powerless. We all know what that's like on one level. You can go to anybody because you're no better than anybody else. The other one, I have trouble doing justice when I feel empty. But the, the gospel, it lifts you up. It gives you affirmation that you belong to God, that you have his love. And Jesus did this for you by taking on your oppression, your poverty, your brokenness, so that you could richly possess God and be empowered by his spirit in abundance, in fullness, and in power. Uh, not enough people care like I do about this justice. Have you gone to the church? Because there's a people... We look at this injustice and we ask God what to do together. There's no telling what might happen with a unified force. The beauty of that will get you out of yourself, okay? The beauty of the cross it gets us out of ourselves so we can pray along with Solomon. Give us your justice, O God. Be careful. It'll give you a foolish obsession with the poor and the powerless. The widow, the orphan, the alien. That's the person who can do justice. Okay. We, we, we have a lot of growth here. If you're feeling the growth edge here, that's okay. I expect that. We have a lot of growth to do here. We're a young church. We're getting our feet on ourselves. We're trying to figure this out. We need to get better at this. And the way we do it is by beholding the beauty of the cross, of the cross, time and time again, that we might be inspired by this beauty, find God's justice, work for it in the world. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father God, we come to you as your people. We come to you with a great request. 
Would you give us more of yourself? Would you give us your justice? I pray this for all of my friends, God, for myself. We look to you, and and God, I pray you would show us uh, through the beauty of the cross that you are the most valuable thing that we might hold, that we would ever hold, God, that we might ask for you time and time again so that we could bless the world with your message and with your intense identification with the poor, the powerless, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. You are powerful. May we do this through Christ. Empower us through your spirit. Show us grace and give us courage to take meaningful steps. Amen.